Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. Uh, I'm quite excited about this episode because we're going to be interviewing perhaps one of the most controversial figures in uh, in Ontario politics right now, uh, Roman Baber. So, Roman, why don't you... Uh, Give us a 30-second bio, and then we'll go right into it. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Good to be with your listeners. Um, my name is Roman Babber. I'm an MPP from York Centre, which is the west side of North York. And um, as some of your listeners know, I've been removed by the Premier from the Ontario Progressive Conservative Caucus about a month ago uh, for writing a letter, uh, open letter to the Premier, in which I opposed the lockdowns. Um, I'm uh, an immigrant to Canada. I was born in the Soviet Union. When I was nine, we moved to Israel. And when I was 15, uh, we moved to uh, Canada, directly to Shepherd and Bathurst, uh, an area I now represent. And uh, <laughs> I've been very, very blessed um, to be Exhibit A for Canadian Opportunity. I went to William Lyon McKenzie, New York University for poli-sci. Uh, I then went uh, to Western for law school and uh, was blessed with a wonderful legal career, practiced commercial and uh, civil litigation for 12 years. Uh, and then elected um, first to provincial parliament in 2018, and uh, had a remarkable run thus far. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, you definitely served some interesting roles. I think the last time you and I were on opposite sides of things was the, uh, I believe you supported McKay and I supported uh, Aaron O'Toole. But we could talk about that on another episode, perhaps. I think what the listeners are really interested in and what myself and Zach are really interested in is you took a very principled stand that has cost you potentially your political career. I don't, I don't actually believe it's cost you your political career, but there are a lot of people who do. So can you walk us through why you made this decision, uh, what it means for you, what it means for the people of Ontario, and actually what it means for the people of Canada? Sure. I made the decision to speak out after speaking with hundreds of constituents and people across Ontario who told me, look, the lockdown is causing more harm than good. And I believe that the data supports that as well. So I wrote about the impacts of the lockdown on health, on mental health, on the increase in overdoses, suicidal thoughts, and the economic toll on Ontarians. And all of those things I submit should be factored into our decision-making. So it's important to have a fair and open discussion, not only about the risk of the virus, but also the catastrophic effect of the lockdown. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know Zach and I are in 100% agreement with you on this, and I've spoken to a number of people on this. I think... The real problem here is that we we have leaders in this country who are timid men. They're not willing to make hard decisions and they don't want any blood on their hands, which I mean, who wants blood on their hands? But the end result is that they have a lot more blood on their hands. I mean, I'm from Alberta, kind of the epicenter of the opioid crisis right now. And opioid deaths have skyrocketed during lockdown because we're social animals. We need one another. And when we're isolated, I mean, there's a reason that isolation is used as torture. Yes, David, exactly right. So in, in politics, just like in medicine, it's important that we weigh the consequences of our actions. And objectively, what we're seeing is that the lockdown uh, is, is causing a, a catastrophic unintended consequence, not only on people, but on our healthcare system as well. Uh, you know, cancer screenings have significantly decreased. I, I cited in my letter an oncologist from Princess Margaret who spoke out and said, look, uh, he's fearing a tsunami of cancer because cancer screenings are down by about 40%. Cancer didn't disappear. We're just diagnosing it late. 
I had a physician, Dr. Phillips, write to me two weeks ago, say he's never diagnosed so much advanced cancer in his emergency room. Uh, overdoses are trending, were trending 50% above normal midway through the year. Uh, and in fact, the numbers are staggering. You know, city of Toronto came out on January 29th and they said that year over year from 2019 to 2020, the difference in overdoses is 67%, but 300 people. That is about the same number as all the people that died in the province of Ontario from or with COVID under the age of 60. And yeah. while yeah. every death, every death is tragic. And, you know, in, in, in my faith, we, we say that one, one life is tantamount to the entire universe. So we have to protect every single life. But I wrote a letter, not about the economy or about jobs per se. I actually stressed the fact that instead of compromise, we may be compromising lives by virtue of what we're doing. And I may be wrong. But this weighing exercise, I think, is an important exercise, and we should not bury our heads in the sand. And instead, we should really think and, and audit and, and calculate whether what we're doing is actually causing more deaths than otherwise uh, would accrue, God forbid. Well, and uh, one of the things that my cousin and I say to each other a lot is we aren't stopping cars from driving in the, on the roads and just because every life matters, right? Society has basically come to the agreement that in order for us to be able to get from place to place, we are going to sacrifice a certain number of, of human lives in the, in the process of doing that. Now, we can debate the morality of that, but it's, it is consensus. We, imagine if we said no more driving because we need to save every life. Okay, so, so you're exactly right. And of course, there's calculated risks um, and, and there's risks that we generally as society assume. And then there's also way sensible uh, risk when the risk level is elevated. We, there, there's a possibility that we, in fact, I believe that we had made an error as it pertains to COVID response. We did so because we didn't have enough information in the beginning. This is now a very different virus than we thought that it was in March or April. And don't get me wrong, COVID is very real. And it can be, it's, it's very transmissible. It's a type of coronavirus. It has some unique qualities, such as it can uh, sometimes attack various parts of the body, be it cardio or, or the brain or, or even lungs or kidney. But generally speaking, uh, it is, and, and it has an interesting exception for folks with diabetes for some reason. But generally speaking, we know that it attacks or that it's, it's dangerous for very vulnerable, and by that I mean the very vulnerable populations. And that includes folks that live in congregate settings and generally people over 80. More than 80% of all Ontarians who passed away from COVID or with COVID were over the age of 80. And more than 80% of them were living in congregate homes where the life expectancy is typically about 14 months. And so on average, regretfully, these folks were in their last year of life. And I'm not saying that we don't need to think about them. In fact, we have failed them. The provincial government, a year later almost, we still don't have proper infection protocol and control in place. We still have, we're still short-staffed and the premier is, is refusing to call in the military, even though he says he wants assistance from everybody because he doesn't want another report. And we still have agency workers. We still have agency walk, walking back and forth from one home to another, potentially spreading COVID. So we need to focus on, on helping and, and safeguarding those that are at risk from COVID instead of imprisoning 15 million Ontarians and making healthy people sick. 
and, and and not only that, taking away our freedom in such a way. I I, I don't know how much you paid attention to that barbecue uh, restaurant uh, and what they did to that guy in Toronto, but if you did, I'd love your thoughts on it. Look, um, obviously the the case of Addison Barbecue was sensationalized somewhat, but the principle stands is that if public service, and and these are elected official, sorry, these are public office holders. They're appointed. They serve at the pleasure of elected officials that are responsible to the people. And there's no reason why we don't need to hold them responsible or question their decisions. And so, I know the fact of the fact that we're not even being allowed to question the quote unquote decisions of experts. And, and I, I really do believe this is actually a failure of decision making. It's an unwillingness to make decisions that's got us to this point. But the fact that we're being told we're not even allowed to question this. And then if we do, we're going to be kicked out of our party or we're going to be blackballed or we're not going to be allowed to travel. Um, this is not the freedom of the West that we all, that our, that our ancestors, at least my ancestors fought and died for. David, exactly right. Um, as I mentioned to you, I was born in the Soviet Union. We're questioning authority. We're questioning the regime could publicly, or even with your neighbors or friends could lend someone in a, in a labor camp. Of course, we don't have anything of that sort here, but um, there seems to be a prevailing culture of fear and any and and generally foreclosure on debate and and that seems completely irresponsible to me given the extraordinary times we're going through it's only typically decision making processes enhanced where you hear different perspectives and when you put decision makers to the test to defend what it is that they suggest well and how can they like this is the this is the sure. what's driving me nuts this is what's driving me nuts and I, I you you're an elected official i've never been an elected official but i've worked for dozens of them including prime minister harper you know premier kenny and one of the things i've always admired in what i would quote unquote call great leaders is that they take responsibility for their decisions i'm not seeing a lot of responsibility taking happening across this country right now for the pain and torment and and life-shattering decisions that they're making for people because they don't think those people matter somehow. I mean, all of the people who are keeping this going are not being impacted by it. The media, they've never had it so good. The politicians, they're not losing their jobs. The, the healthcare workers, well, we have, a, we have socialized medicine, so no matter what happens economically, they're going to still have their jobs. The, the teachers, right? Well, of course they don't want disease spreading in their schools, but they're not going to lose their jobs if there's a lockdown. But what about the millions of Canadians who are on the edge of financial ruin to save our 80-year-olds? So just to round up, David, good question. Just to finish the point on, on questioning government, not only we should be able to question government and, and public officials, not only during extraordinary times, especially during extraordinary times, but at all times. Yes, yes. Questioning a uh, government is a fundamental premise of democracy. It's why my family is here. It's why I think all of us are here. And, and when you go down that road where somehow that is frowned upon or, or is punishable, uh, you discourage dissent and then you're into potentially horrible consequences. Well, I also think that the discouragement of dissent is a form of cowardice. 
right? And uh, it's an unwillingness to defend defend your own position with rhetoric and debate. And instead, you're just you're basically when people do what they've done to you, they're admitting that you're probably right, but they don't care because they want to keep control. Yeah, that's a very important. That's that's a good point that you raised, David. Not the government never actually addressed any of the issues that are raised in my letter. Right? They've made all sorts of accusations against me. They they picked on to a typo. Um, I, I challenged them on their allegation of misinformation. I think I was correct. Um, I stand by my reference letter, but never did they actually address the the fundamental point, which is should we not weigh the cost, the toll, the adverse effect of our response against COVID? And, and surely we have to do that because in, in politics, just like in medicine, we have to weigh the cost of our actions. And objectively, the lockdown is taking a catastrophic toll on, on people, on uh, the economy, but most importantly, on the healthcare of Ontarians, be it by way of their health or mental health. And, and so weighing that against COVID at large is a legitimate and necessary inquiry. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself in a lot of ways, but I would say on a, from a mental health perspective, this last year has been one of the most difficult of my life. Right. I'm 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 a social animal. I love being around people. I I need human interaction to, you know, that's what fuels my my enjoyment of life. And I'm being trapped in my own home. Like and 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 people say, well, David, like, why don't you care? Don't you want to help? Yeah. I mean, if if I was actually saving a lot of lives by staying in my house, I would. But I don't believe that's what's happening. Something else is happening. I don't know what it is, but but we're not saving that many lives right now. And we're certainly not, we're, we're, I really do believe the cost of this is much, much higher than the benefit. You are not saving any lives because there's absolutely no proportional relationship between cases and metrics that truly matter, like ICUs and mortality. You know, since, since the beginning of the stay-at-home order, uh, we had about a hundred and. 30,000 cases, about a third of all cases since the beginning of the pandemic. But the ICU number is actually going down. Yeah. Reality yeah. Is, is largely unchanged because it's not, it's not about who, it's not about how much COVID, it's not about cases or how many people get COVID. It's about who gets COVID. David, if you and I get COVID, we're, we're, we're statistically, we're going to be okay. I have friends. I have friends who got it, and they didn't even know they had it. But we don't need to dismiss it. I'm not saying that we should dismiss it. I'm making a different point because this is—it can be a very serious virus, and it can be very deadly to certain folks. But you can—you can have a hundred thousand kids infected with COVID today, and hospitalization is not going to move a nudge. Versus two hundred seniors getting COVID today in long-term care home, and God forbid, a hundred of them are going to pass. Yes. Yes. And, and so, what you need, and and so we finally need to come to the sensible realization that there's absolutely no relationship between cases and, and the metrics that matter. What we need to do is we need focused protection on vulnerable population. You know, 10 months later, the government has yet to work out infection protocol and control. 10 months later, we're short-staffed considerably in long-term care homes. 10 months later, we, we still haven't banned temporary workers and agency workers from going from one home to another. And instead, we're, we're, we're just making, we're not 
safeguarding healthy people from from harm, we're imprisoning and we're making healthy people sick. Yeah, yeah. And I wanna I wanna add to that because I think what you just said is incredibly important. And and the listeners need to understand we're being like we're being fed a bunch of bullshit. Right. And and that bullshit is, oh, look at all the cases. We have to keep the cases down. Um, the cases aren't the problem. It's vulnerable people. And what I don't understand is we have a federal government sending out two thousand dollar checks to everybody and letting and 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 the provinces all lined up keeping people at home when those people don't want a two thousand dollar check they want to be able to work conservatives used to say that the best government program is a job and of course for those that that are uh, able-bodied and and are not compromised by disability uh that is always true and any business owner or any employee you speak to would tell you they don't want government support they want to go back to work and I want to talk about the effect on the economy for a minute, because somehow um, folks believe that it's just the small shops and, and, and the restaurants. That's not the case at all. The, uh, I practiced uh, bankruptcy and commercial litigation early in my career, and I can tell you that uh, the economy has a very serious domino effect. When a restaurant, when a small business fails, the failure is not limited to that business. It, it affects their employees. It affects their suppliers, their trade creditors, their landlords, their, land, their lenders, and all of their families. And so we now have half a million people in Ontario that are still unemployed in comparison to pre-pandemic levels. We have tens of thousands, if not already in the 100,000 mark businesses shut down, never returning. And what about those folks and, and their health? Because we know that there's a direct connection between economic well-being and health well-being. And how about their families? There's no thinking. There's absolutely no thought being given to them. It's tragic. Why do you think, so like you've been in the room, decision maker, you know, I've been in the room helping decision makers. What do you think went wrong? Okay. Um, David? So I, I, I think it's, it's what went wrong in, in many other places around the world, especially those that don't have courage to admit a mistake. Right, right. I do not, I do not believe in any great resets or any, any world forum stuff. I, I think all of this is a lot simpler. You have a very sensational story. You have a new virus that haven't been seen before. It's coming from China. People are not sure how it came about. Then very early on, you see some deaths, but we don't test enough for COVID. So we don't understand how prevalent it is, which leads us to believe that the fatality rate from COVID is very, very high. So we now start believing that it's a very deadly disease. We take a lesson from uh, China and for the first time in our pandemic management history, we do a broad lockdown, something we've never done before. And on, on with it we go. And sometime towards the middle of May, we start understanding, well, you know, maybe this is not as dangerous as we thought. Um, and, and I say that for, for two reasons. Number one, we understand where the focus is. It's with vulnerable populations that need protection and not with the population at large. And number two, 
we learned that the infection rate is so high that the metrics that we're worried about are actually significantly better than we thought. Let, let me explain this point. For me, COVID was over around the end of May, maybe earlier, when Stanford University came out and said that the infection rate is 50 times cases. That means that for every person that they were diagnosing with COVID, there was another 50 walking with COVID. That was a very good thing because that meant that the mortality rate, the hospitalization rate is 50 times lower, right? Other jurisdictions place this serological um, data around the, the 20 time cases. But that narrative has never, we have never been able to share good news about COVID. We ruled out, um, we, we ruled out surfaces fairly quickly. That has not been discussed. We had very little discussion about asymptomatic transmission. When a healthy person passes a virus to another healthy person, we have not discussed that. Even though it merits it, everything merits a discussion. Everything merits a fair discussion. And so what ended up happening, if I may, and I'm sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no worries. I'm loving this. Keep going. You, you had, a, you had a, a virus that we've never seen before and not clear how it came about. You have a very high mortality rate and you have a mistake. And a lot of folks are unwilling to admit that mistake, which is the, which is the lockdown. And so there are a lot of careers and reputations that are at play. But beyond that, when we thought that the world was ending in March and April, a politically correct narrative formed that, you know, we have to watch out for everyone and we have to be safe. And in fairness, I was part of that narrative. Yeah, stay home, save lives, right? For sure. But then that narrative became a politically correct narrative. And these days, politically correct narratives are fortified by cancel culture. Yes. So if, yes. You dare to, if you dare to speak out against this prevalent politically correct narrative, you ought to be canceled. And so that prevents professionals, experts, academics, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, educators from speaking out and saying what we're doing is absolutely nonsensical because they'll be canceled just like I was canceled by the government. So we are continuing this exercise in insanity we're causing an untold harm to people at large, especially to children. And for some reason, there's unwillingness whatsoever to, to exercise leadership and say, you know what? We're going to be honest about what's transpiring here and do what's best for folks. Yeah, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And this is why I often say on this podcast, we must save this country from timid men, because really this is a problem of courage a lack of leadership. It's an unwillingness to take responsibility for a mistake. Yes. Um, the, the, the folks running the operation uh, on the health side, the command table, which has ballooned apparently to 500 people. <laughs> Can you imagine um, trying to make a decision with 500 people in a room? What, what ends up happening is you have two people making decisions and they tell the 500 and 500 are afraid of actually saying what's going on. But, but this is odd because Doug Ford campaigned on efficiencies and you would not think that a conservative <laughs> would have um, and, and instead, instead what you have is, is this crazy medical narrative where they refuse to acknowledge error. And I, I like to challenge the, the modeling table all the time. And I've done so repeatedly and successfully, may I add in that I say, look, you have actually hit the metrics, the case metrics that you were worried about. 
whether it was during the, the fall uh, preparedness or, or during the statement home order, the trajectory or the number of cases the modeling folks are worried about did materialize. But the resulting, but the ensuing consequences, such as the ICU number, the deaths did not. And they tend to over-exaggerate. They tend to overestimate all the time. And it's on the basis of that that we make remarkable decisions that affect people's lives in a very profound way, and especially the management of hospitals, in that, in that we are rationing our healthcare capacity. Uh, we are closing beds. We're closing wards. We're, we're taking labor off the table in order to preserve for COVID response. And in doing so, preserving for a response that doesn't materialize, we actually end up compromising the healthcare of Ontarians. And Canadians. This is the Canadian story after all. Absolutely. Look, I'm, I, I can speak to the uh, province of Ontario. Um, yes. No, no, no. I just, I want to make it clear to the listeners, we're not just talking about Ontario here. I think this problem is, is, is just as bad in, in Alberta right now, maybe even worse uh, because... Albertans are, are more private sector in their employment, which means it's hurting us disproportionately more than it is Ontarians even. The, the tragedy is, is coast to coast. Um, and um, I, I don't know. I am, I'm perplexed, David, by, by what I'm seeing from the federal government and, and the unwillingness of Canadians and especially the conservative infrastructure to, to say a word about what's transpiring. I, I cannot understand how is it that a Canadian could be detained. Oh, I know. Simply as simply for entering Canada. It's, it's astonishing to me. And, and we have not heard from one opposition MP on this issue. And it's- Because they're all afraid. They're terrified. Uh, what, what's happened is, we live in, a, I, I don't know, I'd love your opinion on this, but this is my analysis of the situation. Fear has become the dominant emotion in the, in the lives of Western people. And I'm not talking about race, religion, creed. I'm just saying for some reason in the West, and by the West, I mean kind of the democratic world, fear has become the predominant emotion. Yes. Why? I think that... Um... First of all, the, the virus itself, as I said just earlier, when we weren't doing testing and we found people COVID positive, dying from COVID, we thought that the fatality rate is very high. Second of all, we had a very different approach to this pandemic and, and information flow and awareness by virtue of media and social media. And there's no question that the amount of of fear that has went into this is so profound that I'm not even sure at which point, it doesn't matter what, what graph I produce or, or what table I show, even using the, the Ministry of Health's own numbers. Getting through this fear will be very, very difficult. And you know, and, you know I, have a, I have this theory, uh, Ben Shapiro and I do not agree. Ben Shapiro's like facts don't care about your feelings. And I often say feelings don't care about facts. And, and what we're in right now is a time where facts are not going to be the way we get out of this. We need people to get become more courageous and start standing up. Our, I, I would argue like you did. You know, I don't know you very well. We've never really worked together. But when you took that stand, I and many, many people like me 
We're like, that is the moral position. So you're, you're correct. Um, I'm, I'm perplexed why the government is also active in this process in that it's refusing to divulge good news in that it's refusing to delineate a line between deaths in congregate settings and deaths in the community. And most importantly, I'm seeing instances, there was a doctor that came to my defense a couple of days after the letter, former chief of medical officer of health for the province of Ontario, who served for 10 years, Dr. Shabas wrote a letter in my support, said Roman Vabra was right on all five points. And then towards the end, he said, you know, the province is fear-mongering. It's using a death metric, a mortality metric that is not accurate. It's using the case fatality rate instead of infection rate. Now, this is a little technical, but it's important to understand. The province is basing its mortality estimates on the basis of known cases, as opposed to the correct metric, which is the estimated infections. And what that does is optically, it significantly increases the number, uh, the, the mortality expectation, and it does so in, in absence it, it's, it's so arbitrary because it's all subject to whim of testing. And Dr. Sheva said that the province is doing that in order to fear monger people into submission, people into, into submission to public health rules and specifically the lockdown. And I find that astonishing. Well, I have a, I have yeah. a theory on this that I wanted to run by you, but uh, let's look at Manitoba, Saskatchewan, BC, New Brunswick, what happened when their incumbent governments called an election? They, they won sweeping majorities, every single one. And you know why? Because uh, Napoleon said there's two things to, to hold a man's attention, interest or fear. Those are the only two ways. So if you, could be, you have to be either interesting or you have to make them afraid. Well, if, you, if the government can make people afraid, what are they going to do? Say, protect me, government. Sure. Um, look, this is this is another interesting uh, maybe spin-off, uh, a, a political spin-off of, of the story, is that we have seen governments benefit generally from pandemic and pandemic response by way of electoral fortunes. Uh, I, I believe that much of what is happening right now is political. I think that the premier is at a point where he cannot, he doesn't see how he can come before the voters and say, well, I'm not going to listen to public health anymore. He thinks that he's going to wear the consequences of that decision. But the second thing is, uh, politicians are very interested in their electoral prospects and re-election. And uh, the provincial government, at least in their mind, is polling very, very high. They think, Doug Ford thinks that he's going to win a super majority. And he probably thinks that there's no reason to do anything different. And that is very, very unfortunate. Because, he, yeah, he points to Jason Kenney and says, I don't want to be like Jason Kenney potentially and, and open up and, and get in trouble electorally. And what that does, this absence of leadership, uh, putting politics before people, putting politics before policy, unfortunately here may have uh, deadly consequences. Well, I have a lot of theories around this. I actually think that the Canadian political system is one of the most embarrassing in the entire uh, G8. And, and I, in the spirit of the Canadian story, I will tell what my, I think my solution to that should be because we're not allowed to criticize without offering a solution. My solution is we need to start treating our politicians better and stop nickel and diming them. We want to be, we want to be attracting the best and the brightest of our country to help make policy decisions. And you can't pay your best and your brightest 150 to 165 grand a year. 
why would they why would they go and do that the only reason they would do is out, out of one of two reasons ego or a desire for public service and so there are good politicians in this country but we are not at- attracting the best and the brightest into politics because we're not like and singapore figured this out a long time ago lots of places have like it, all you have to do is make the compensation worthy of the like a minister of health in ontario what's the budget for the ministry of health you probably know 65 billion that's a 65 billion dollar company being run right you want uh elon musk level intelligence running that for you right <laughs> and and unfortunately instead of in the minister that's running it it's a bureaucrat and yeah. and their bureaucrats and and their layers of bureaucrats that are running this and they're completely unaccountable and they have no fear of any consequences for their mismanagement or incompetence. You don't you don't get demoted or you don't get fired. You typically get promoted uh, in order to uh, be alleviated from a position. <laughs> well, I mean that that is the, the brokenness of the system. Uh, I, I call right. it the I call it the iron law of bureaucracy. Well, I don't call it that. That's what it's called, right? Is a system's put into place and then the system's purpose is lost and it becomes simply to perpetuate the system itself. That's the iron law of bureaucracy, right? I have yet to, David, uh, I've been uh, out of government for um, about a month and I have yet to really sit down. I've been very, very busy with the lockdown because all I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm working on um, persuading and advocacy to get the government to lift the lockdown. But I, I have yet to really sit down and, and contemplate and digest what it is that I've seen in the last three years, the level, the astonishing level of waste and mismanagement, the uh, rules and, and protocol in place to get anything accomplished, the timeframes within which people operate, uh, people's appetite to, to serve and, and the consequences stemming from that. Uh, there, will, there, there will be a day and, and maybe you'll invite me back and, and we'll think about that some more, but I can tell you that, uh, to your point, you want to encourage the best and the brightest, but you also want a political system that enables some sort of check and balance. And yes, yes. In, in fairness, the British parliamentary system may may, may not be ideal uh, for check and balance, where, where the leader of the party is also leader of parliament, is also leader of the government. So that's that creates... An interesting. That's, that's a, a. We should have a discussion on that because uh, I think we're we're going to be and I. What I've been telling people is we're entering what I call the churn. Uh, I I don't know if you've read the the for, the fourth turning or not, but um, we're we're in the transition period. This happens all the time. You know, all you have to do is read history to see where we're at. Wealth inequality has has massively increased, which means there's going to be civil unrest. Uh, governments are becoming worried, so they're trying to assert more control. This is the oldest story in the human playbook, right? But yes. the change is coming, and it's already happening, and there's just a lot of status quo people who benefit from things remaining exactly as they are and nothing changing who are fighting back against it, but they're losing. We, um, I, I think, regretfully we're suffering a considerable disconnect in, in what we're typically used to from a political system to what is now happening during the age of COVID. I am very saddened, David, and, and this is something that I have yet to fully articulate um, publicly, that first, 
it, it almost seemed as if the media was not interested in, in anything that did not involve the inquiry of, are we doing enough to save us from COVID as opposed to, does this make sense? Then we, we encounter a culture on social media where if you speak out against this politically correct narrative, you're going to be um, killed by virtue of a Twitter mob. Then we had a situation where we had to cohort in parliament in order to allow for physical distancing. Only half of us were allowed. Um, and then banned outdoor gatherings. So there's no public square. Yep. And, so keep, keep the people away from one another. I mean, and, the Chinese outlawed clubhouse in China because they couldn't have regular people talking to one another in such a free and open place. Yeah, and and then eventually, and then eventually, uh, I, I was asked for government. So we didn't have we didn't have the media, we didn't have the, the social media, um, we didn't have uh, the public square, we didn't fully have parliament. Parliamentary debate ended on the pandemic response with Bill One Ninety Five, and uh, and then also had, didn't have an ability to remain in government while articulating um, a position against the narrative. So I, I think we need to really be concerned with, with some of our principal institutions and, and make sure that God willing, when we come out of this and we will, um, I think that we figure out a way to preserve these institutions. Yeah. One of the things that I've been saying and to anyone who will listen is you do, we do not understand how angry the people are becoming and there, yeah. and there's nothing more dangerous than a bunch of angry people who have realized that the game is rigged against them. I don't know. I don't think that that has happened yet. I don't think that folks really understand that, but I do fear uh, a significant uh, crisis when, when folks realize that, look, if, if I lost my business, I lost my life savings, I lost something that was very, very dear to me because of a virus and, and I stayed home and saved lives and everyone did. So that's okay. That's one thing. But when more and more folks are now realizing that the public health narrative has been false, the, the reaction uh, can be devastating. And um, I, I, my heart goes out. And I do understand the anger, David. I, I felt in the weeks leading to my letter, I could take it no more. I have heard of so much, as they say in, in, in the English language, Taurus, I've heard of so many trouble so many heartbreaking situations um, that that I, I I couldn't contain my my sadness and I guess I couldn't contain my actions um, anymore. I, I felt that I, I had the obligation to speak out on behalf of people that are compromised either by way of health, mental health, or economically. Well, and I guess I'll just say this to you: I I honor that in you because this was not a decision. But maybe in the long run, it will uh, will benefit you because I, I believe you were right. But in the short term, you made sacrifices of your personal and professional career to stand up for what you believe is right. And now, you know, there are definitely people who think you're wrong and who think I'm wrong. And they're they're entitled to that opinion, too. But we should at least be able to have the debate. Absolutely. I'm entitled. I am entitled to be wrong. Yes. I, yes. I'm entitled to speak and I'm entitled to be wrong. So, um, David, I, I, I thank you for, 
for being gracious to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. And uh, just one last question. Sure. We've got three minutes left here. And I ask everyone on the podcast. So just in a two-minute summary, why do you love this country? I, I came to Canada on September 5th, 1995. I came to Shepherd and Bathurst. I looked outside of the window. And I saw Earl Bales Park and, and Young Street and lights and towers on the other side. I, I, I recount that story quite often. And I was in love from day one. And David, we didn't have a cent to our name. Uh, my first bed uh, in Canada was from, from a, a dumpster behind 66 Shepherd. My father sold ice cream on those yellow bicycles. But, yeah. I've, but I've always had a job and I've always had this incredible joy because it didn't really matter. Because when you come to Canada, the only thing you, you have opportunity, you don't need anything else. And I, I truly believe that there's nothing systemic standing in our way. This country, this city, this, this, this province gives us every opportunity to learn, to succeed, to, to grow, to, to work. And, and it lets us do that while maintaining our cultural and religious heritage and, and feeling safe and free. All, all you need to do to succeed in Canada is work harder and be nice to people. And that's it. Yes. And this, well, and, and, and here's the problem. That's what these politicians are taking away from us. I am scared that, that COVID will compromise that. Absolutely. Which is why I encourage your listeners uh, to remain optimistic, to speak against the lockdown and continue keeping the government to account. The public health policy, public health narrative has to make sense. Uh, a very smart lawyer taught me early in my career. If it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. And a lot <laughs> I love that. I love that. A lot of this well, doesn't make sense. I, I know you got to go. We'll definitely have you on again. Thank you so much for, uh, for giving us this time. And thank you for standing up for people who don't have a voice. I appreciate that sincerely, David. Be well. Be well as well. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.